This is Ditch Diggers, Season 7, Episode 15, I'm pretty sure. Ditch Diggers appear and ain't no wannabes here. With some not so nice advice for your writing career. To be clear, no punches will be pulled, but the punch may be spiked. How they like before they get on the mic. To my left, we got the mighty Mer Lafferty. And if I piss her off, believe me, she'll come after me. And her co-host, Matt Evan Wallace, on the right. Yeah, she may be half as hype as she can take him in a fight. So hi, welcome to Ditch Diggers. I am Mer Lafferty. Usually Matt Wallace is with me, but Matt is, hang on, he has sent a bag full of receipts in different languages from different countries, but they all appear to be for tuna melt and gravy fries, and there's a note from Matt that says, please file for tax season next year. So Matt's still alive. We're, and eating a lot of tuna melts, apparently. I hope the tuna's always good. But in his place, we have Mike Underwood, who has been uh, specifically asked for by Matt to fill his shoes. So Mike, I thank you very much for... Uh, filling Matt's shoes, coming in, and uh, reprising your role as the super amazing marketer that just blew everyone's mind the last time you were here. So welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. It's fun because uh, Matt and Mai's publishing destinies have been kind of intertwined and dancing back and forth since we both had books out at the beginning of the Tor.com novella project. And That's right. did some, you know, kind of cross-marketing stuff. So yeah. Uh, it makes me think about like who you who you have books out with can create a lot of relationships that otherwise maybe would have never happened, and that's mm -hmm. pretty fun. Yeah, it, it is weird how sometimes things um, you get connected with people through ways you don't expect. I um, I'm friends with uh, K M Spera, the author of Docile, because we had the same agent, and then when our agent quit, we both moved to the same agent again. So, you know, he's my, my agency brother, and I suppose we always have to be connected now. But um, while it, it, it is weird, it's like you, you do feel that sort of connection even though there's not really one? I suppose unless you have a problem, and then you can go, all right, can we talk about that thing that we both know about? That's, I suppose that's good, but... Um, you know, it's we. I talk about networking a lot on this show and my other show, and I realize I don't even touch on the fact the people you get to know through publisher or agency. Yeah, the something that I've heard people talk about for the last few years, and I think it's a very good idea, um, is is that notion that if you're you know on the book side, and we're talking like publishing adult science fiction fantasy or YA, I think it applies um, in some of these other categories as well. Like the people that you debut with are likely to be the best people for you to confer with and have as buddies mm -hmm. when you're in that like two-ish year um, Death Star Trench leading up to and just post debut. Yeah. because you're more likely to be experiencing some of the same milestones and challenges in the industry versus like, oh, okay, well, this person only ever networked up 
where it's like, okay, yeah. I'm about to debut and I'm going to make friends with a bunch of people who've already debuted, already have award nominations and or are already bestsellers. Like at this point, the only reason that I have a even a remote sense of what it is like for people to debut in this industry is because I've continued to make friends with people as they come into the industry and as they get these deals. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I'm, you know, nine years removed from my debut and I don't have as clear a sense of what things are like on the ground for folks. That's a good point. I've, I've realized that I've been podcasting for over 17 years and if people ask me about how to start a podcast or how to podcast their own work, I'm just like, get a time machine and go back to 2005. That's because that's all I know because things have changed so much that I don't, I have no idea what it's like to be a new podcaster these days. None. And actually that's why I started I Should Be Writing because the only other writing uh, podcast at the time was done by Michael A. Stackpole, who was an industry veteran. And so the things he was speaking to was good advice, but he was not talking about problems that newbie authors had. So, um, and now there's a million writing podcasts, but. Yeah, and yeah. now you don't have to be, you don't have like the two podcasts that exist don't have to then cover the whole world. Like as there's proliferation, yeah. Uh, you know, shows can get narrower and deeper in kind of where their where their focus is, and you know, people who who have had some of the same experiences that you've had over over time are going to be able to connect uh, and resonate with the things that you're talking about. So, uh, you know, we can only ever speak to our own experience, except as we understand it through the people that we relate to. Right. So um, I'm going to say hi to chat since they were very, very helpful in telling me that my mic was not connected. We've got Ansela, uh, glad to be awake for this. We're glad you're here. Starred Green is here. Um, Lee is logging off from work, so perfect timing. Excellent. Uh, Turbo Tango is Mike. So welcome to the chat as well, Mike. Um, let's see. We've got Tree Lobsters is here. Under Pope is here. Uh, thank you for everybody who's telling me again about the sound. I, I, I gotta start checking that now. It's happened enough times. Very sorry, all. Um, uh, Professor Nick Tiris, good to see you. It's been a long time, I think. Uh, Ansela, Kids Are Asleep is here. Shout out to Kids Are Asleep. Uh, and, uh, let's see. Kids Are Asleep, the, the... Clark nominated Kids Are Asleep. Uh, let's see. It looks like everybody who's chatting away in the stream. Welcome to everybody who's not... Uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> Welcome to everybody who's not chatting. I'm glad everyone's here, regardless of your uh, interaction with the stream. Um, it doesn't feel like that long since we talked, except that I guess 2020 just kind of compressed itself into a little dense star ball of horridness, and it's really easy just to skip past that. But it has been a while since we've had you on the show, and so we haven't talked about any of the wretchedness that came from the pandemic, or, obviously, how publishing as a whole and authors individuals are coming out of it. And so since you gave so much good uh, marketing information, seriously, guys, go back in the archives and look for the other interview with Mike. It was amazing. 
um, it would be cool to see what your take is on as the world wakes up, for better or for worse, please guys wear your mask, get your vaccination, and look out for the Delta variant because it's still out there. Even though we're trying to wake up, tell us what you think is going on in publishing as uh, COVID hopefully goes into our rearview mirror, mostly. Yeah, I think so. there's a few things that I think are worth talking about. Um, and there's like the US specific stuff is what I'm going to be most informed on because you know it's where where I am you know and it's where the kind of epicenter of the the part of the industry we work in is based if not the whole world but like there's a bunch of the world that is still in a in a version of the pandemic that we were like last summer and yeah. publishing being global um, I think that that impacts a lot of things that are maybe a little bit farther out and rippling out from where we are. Um, and so, you know, international conventions, conventions elsewhere in the world, maybe won't pick up in the way that conventions are starting back up, in-person conventions are starting back up in the US and maybe in some other areas that have had more vaccine access. Um, but like US wise, a lot of reporting that I saw last year and at the end of last year was that, oh, well, book sales are up compared to the year previous, which is interesting when you think about all the conventions that didn't happen, all of the yeah. in-store book events that didn't happen and all things like that. Digging into the data that is available, and I don't have as much data um, as I did in years past when I you know, had interior access to like Penguin Random House data and things like that. But what I've un what I've heard is that a lot of the sales were backlist and then a big chunk of that boost was educational material as parents and caretakers were buying stuff to do homeschooling right which doesn't really impact adult science fiction fantasy writers in any meaningful way um and so it's hard to go okay well the industry was up in general mm -hmm. but what was the impact on people that debuted in 2020 was the impact on books that came out in 2020 right um you know my my book annihilation aria was supposed to be a um a february book and then got pushed back to may and then as the pandemic started got pushed back to july and came out at the point where you know the only in-person events that i did was here is a socially distanced everyone masked event where you just kind of go around to different uh, picnic tables and there was a short stack of books and you could chat with people and get things signed. Mm -hmm. So that's the only in-person thing that I did for this book until today when tonight I'm going to a still outside um, event at the Ivy Bookshop, which in its new location has this kind of covered backyard area and like things are, are kind of getting back underway but there was so much other stuff and other opportunities that I just missed out on with this book. And I was able to adjust for them because of having, you know, experience and a lot of connections for a bunch of people who debuted. It's just like, well, you only get one debut. Yeah. You get a, the a pandemic asterisk next yeah. to that book release, but there are just experiences that people will not be able to replicate and will not get to have again because of how intense the debut focus of the industry is in terms of like the debutante ball, the best first novel awards and all those things like that, where the structural bias towards books that were already popular becoming more popular because they then get 
on award shortlists because they were already popular doesn't have the counterbalancing uh, possibilities for the people who like spend their entire advance going to a bunch of events and things like that. So like there's a bunch of things that point in a number of different directions and I'm happy to like circle back on and talk more of any of those. I'm interested to hear what you've been seeing in the last year and change um, and you know kind of how to how to be an author around and what you're hearing from colleagues. Well, I think a lot of um, it, it's been difficult. It sounds so absolutely fucking redundant to say this. It's been difficult for everybody for with everything. And I think um, the only salve to the wound is whatever you missed out on last year, there's somebody out there who who had it too. Yeah. It's like, you know, uh, in going to college, I told Numbers Ninja that whatever you think you're going to be held back on for having your first year of college during a pandemic is every other freshman has the same situation, exactly yeah. the same situation. Anybody who's just like, oh, wow, my birthday came and gone last year. Everybody else in the world, yes, same thing. And they debuts, again, like you said, that stand apart because it's a debut and you don't get more than one. And that's rough. But I think even as difficult it has been for everybody in every way, um, I think a lot of people have tried to, you know, I hate the, I hate the term because it's cliche, but, you know, think outside the box and do what they yeah. can. People have tried to uh, be more present online. The virtual conventions had kind of a rocky start, which of course they would because no one had ever done them before. But um, they got pretty streamlined, and there are a couple of uh, good ones out there. I'm do I'm doing one this weekend. I need to I need to mention I'm uh, doing Cosmo Quest a thon. Is there an a thon on there? Cosmo Quest. If you search for Cosmo Quest or see me on Twitter, Mighty Mur, uh, you can see the. I just posted about it before this stream. Mm. But yeah, I'll be doing uh, that one. And that actually has been good because I hear a lot from people saying that, um, you know, you always say go to cons and network. And yeah. I would love to, but I can't because of location or finances or situation where I'm a caregiver or something like that. And now anybody can go to conventions. If you pay for it, that that the money thing is still there. But hopefully most places have at least dropped the price overall for a virtual ticket. And at least Worldcon this year is still doing virtual programming, even though it's going to be in person. And so I think that has been an excellent step forward. Bitter for the disability advocates who've been asking for this kind of thing for, for years sure. when people have said, oh, we can't do that. And then suddenly they're forced to do it and, and suddenly they can do it. And the disability people are like, thanks, I guess. It's, yeah, I've heard some, some bitter, <laughs> people glad that it's happening and just, you know, about time kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but it is happening, which is good. And I don't know. It's been, the challenge has been, 
it's not like life was normal and the only thing that changed is the fact that your debut is going to be screwed with. The the existential awfulness of yeah. last year with the protests and the deaths and the election and the pandemic. I mean, all of that really ground everybody down. And so it's not like, okay, well, what, how can I think of something new to do? It's hard. And yeah. um, I think... I've been trying to think of uh, finding some debuts from last year and featuring them on I Should Be Writing this year so they can get a little bit of after attention. Um, I don't know. I think I think it is something actually we as fellow authors and as inter, you know people in media or marketing could think to do to feature or help out debuts for last year and and this year because things still aren't up to speed yeah um but yeah there, it's it's rough there's been like a an intense but like it kind of comes and goes as a lot of pandemic things have like there's definitely been times where the simply the idea of talking about my book or talking about like writing stuff that I've done feels extremely like trying to sell newspapers outside like a five alarm fire. <laughs> yes. It's like, yeah, here's my, you know, like happy bouncy found family space opera adventure. Like while people are rising up in record numbers and getting international attention for their heroic efforts to fight like historical and systemic racist police violence. Um, but like not every book has to be about what's going on in the world in any specific way. And no book can be about everything all the time. Yeah. And, you know, people really appreciate escapism. Yeah. I, you know, my first two uh, majorly published books, I, I had a couple of self, uh, I mean, small press books, but my first Orbit book, you know, it was a fun monster-focused urban fantasy, and I never thought that any, that what I was writing was the kind of thing that would make any difference. But someone told me they were reading my book sitting by their mother as she was dying, and my book made them enjoy that moment just because they read something funny. And yeah. I realized that, yes, you do have a found family, fun, romping space opera, but sometimes that's what people need. I fell in love with Becky Chambers' work because I read them in 2016, and I needed a hug then, and I got a science fiction book that was a hug, which was right. a long way to a small, angry planet. If you haven't read it, you really should, especially if you like hugs, because that book is a hug. And um, it's... So yeah, it's I understand it's hard to say that, but there's we do need to keep remembering that even if we're not doing hard hitting nonfiction work or ripped from the headlines, let's make you look at your society today, but in a science fiction way kind of thing, there is a place for the fun stuff. There really is. Yeah, because the you know the the firefighters the nurses the uh you know the activists like will come home from the thing at yeah. some point and 
a lot of people probably do not would not have wanted to dive back into the same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, escapism has always had always had a place in art. Um, I, I talk about this a lot, but in I think in undergrad or grad school, I I read and then reread um, Tolkien's On Fairy Stories. And I think that's the essay in which he has like the, his most famous quote about escapism. And for like in that essay, Tolkien identifies escapism as the um, escape of the prisoner, not the flight of the deserter. And if you are a prisoner, your duty is to escape. Mm-hmm. And in a world that imprisons us with fear and doom and oppressive structures, the idea that you can make space for yourself to ha- to find joy is its own form of opposition to those exploitative systems, as well as like escaping from bad feelings. And like, so mm-hmm. I, I take a lot of solace in that. Um, and it's the thing that I have like on deck anytime someone like starts to talk crap about escapism mm-hmm. as a form of storytelling. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know people who, I, I won't say what books because they're, they're not bad books at all, but I like recommended certain books to people who said, I read up and two, and then they mentioned the plot point that has anything in common with the past two years. And they're like, and I had to stop. Right. And, you know, I'm the weirdo that had a very strange desire to reread The Stand last spring. I don't know why. I still can't tell you why. But I wanted to. And so it's... But I know other people who were just like... (laughs) But my family was playing um, Pandemic Legacy, which is, if you don't know, is a board game um, that's... how do we describe legacy board games all of a sudden? Um, legacy board games are board games that are like a story where you play the game and you change the board as you play. So, for example, in Pandemic, you have to mark when a city uh, has an uprising because of the plague. And if you're playing just the normal game, well, the city has an uprising and then the game, you know, you finish the game and then pack everything up and then you play fresh board again. But no, the next time you play Pandemic Legacy, you're going to have that city still damaged, etc. And so it's really more of an experience to play 12 games of this massive thing. And uh, it's about a worldwide pandemic, a number of them. And we just kind of stopped playing that. We stopped a little bit before that, but I got to say that the, the urge to pick it back up was not there. Right. Yeah. And like early in the pandemic, I, uh, I saw this kind of divergence and it's, it built on something that I'd kind of been hearing from colleagues, like post, uh, uh, you know, November, 2016 is that for some people you, you have to, you know, stare right at the thing that's scary, um, to be able to, to cope with it. And some people need to get away from it and maybe you move back and forth between them. Uh, but I think a lot about the idea of narrative modeling, uh, this idea that if you have narratives that you've like read or watched or whatever through that you can use to uh, hold a model of potentiality and possibility in your head that gives some certainty or like lets you banish uncertainty and anxiety, that can be really powerful. So I think that completely explains people diving into the stand 
you know, uh, all the people that watched whatever pandemic movie was on Netflix in late March of 2020 and things like that. Anything to, um, to feel like you have a handle in some way on incredibly unpredictable times. And that can be really powerful. Uh, and like now as a, a person in the kind of sales and marketing world and publishing and trying to think about my own career and what I can do to help colleagues trying to create any sense of narrative modeling and like business futurism so that I can give answers to people being like, so what's next that aren't just, well, I don't know. Um, and that's hard because I still don't have a lot of answers that aren't just, here are the things that I think are the, that are going to be the same as they were before. Uh, but here are some new problems. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a, um... that's something I've never felt good about or, or confident doing. Um, a lot of science fiction authors like Madeline Ashby and Ramez Nam and Cory Doctorow are just like futurists. They're, they're literally futurists and they can tell what, you know, they can see something that happens now will have ripple effects in the future. And it's probably going to have something like this. And I'm never good at figuring that stuff out. And so I've just been trying to figure out, I really don't know where we're going to go beyond right now and doing what we can with what we have at the moment. And I really wish I could. It's not, it's, it's, but it's just not a skill I'm very good at. But, um, so instead of like being prepared for the future, I just try to be ultimately adaptable so I can change with whatever tides come that I don't see coming. That make any sense? I'm not sure. Yeah, like I think writing the best book you possibly can and getting the strongest sense of what potential audience it has is going to be useful almost no matter what. Yeah. And, you know, the when in doubt, go and write another book, which I think I'm paraphrasing from Matt. Um, yeah. Like that still applies. The thing that I've had a really hard time with is I was already writing a really political and sociological book before the pandemic started uh, and having a hard time with it because it was already a stretch. And then my, like, my ability to see people in person to recharge my social batteries, which is like really important for me as a person who, uh, like, it's just, it's very important for me as a person. And then other pandemic challenges have meant that I've been working on this book for a really long time. And I still believe that it's a book worth writing and that if I can do it well, that it may give me career opportunities that my previous books wouldn't have because it's kind of a, a new direction um, in what I have in saying more of what I have to say about the world in a more direct fashion, as opposed to the way that I've done things before, which is like the political elements are more baked into the setting rather than front and center. But the book is just an absolute slog. I'm trying to revise. I've been doing everything that I can to try to make it possible to move forward. And it's just exhausting to even think about how I might dig myself out of uh, kind of like a revision sinkhole, um, we, which is rough. We probably need to talk after ch after this 
off camera because I'm feeling a lot of the same things with my current project. It's like, I thought of this before all of this and I'm doing rewrites and it's very difficult. So it's, yeah. yeah. Um, one, one thing that I, I, I think may be worthwhile on like coming out of pandemic stuff that is maybe more productive, if I can jump in. Yeah, please. Um, is how do we figure out how to keep the best parts of online only events as conventions and other groups are able to go to hybrid in-person and online or uh, in-person focused events? Like what's the way to change the culture so that moving forward, the people who had been excluded until online only becomes a big option can stay included instead of getting pushed back to the margins. Yeah. Um, and what, what can we do as authors? And then what's like, what can we do in terms of um, maintaining that space in the industry and the culture? So what I want to know, and I honestly don't know the answer, I, maybe you do, um, is how much money has going online cost? Because I know, right. you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bandwidth, a lot of, uh, I know you need to spend money on Zoom. Um, if you're going to be doing more than, say, a couple of people. Um, and then, of course, although this isn't, this isn't money, it's, it's definitely people time, man hours of, you got to have a lot of, uh, volunteers there to help every author over the age of 30. And yes, I chose that number carefully, who's just like, I can't figure this out. I, yeah, it's, it's like, I had trouble with a couple of the online um, spaces. And I've been, you know, solidly on the net since, you know, the mid 90s. And I'm still just going, wait a minute, what? And then, yeah. So having to have patience and train with uh, people is going to be heavier lifting on the cons part. However, after going to a couple, I think we're all a bit better at that, I hope. So yeah. experience will be there. Let's see. In the chat, Catwood's saying... I wonder if there's a lot of upfront costs, but less going forward as it becomes more mainstream. Um, I'm hoping so. It's just, I, I don't know how much it's going to cost them. And then, like the Nebulas do a full scripted event for, right. the, ne for the online Nebula um, awards. And they make it... It, it was it was pretty amazingly uh, produced, and yeah. I'm not just saying that because the scriptwriter is a friend of mine. Um, but you know, they did a lot of amazing stuff, and I suppose that wasn't necessary, but it certainly made them stand very much apart from any other con that I'd gone to, just in the effort of what they put forward there. Um, so I don't know how much it cost, but I really hope that the cons will consider a virtual element going forward because of, yeah. like you said, it's, it's just going to push some people back to the margins who couldn't be there. And people are getting, working harder and harder to um, make the virtual spaces easier to mingle in. Um, I'm a fan of gather. I feel like 
one of the weird things about this is that um, once people learned Zoom, it's like it became the standard because nobody wanted to learn something else. Yeah. And that's fair. I mean, learning Zoom or whether you're muted or not um, is, you know, was something we all went through. Um, but I just, after experiencing Gather, I can't imagine why anybody would do a, a, a virtual con with Zoom ever again. Because Gather is, I've talked about it uh, before with, uh, on the stream, it's just a place where you have like a you have a little 8-bit character that represents you and then you see everybody else in the room also 8-bit characters and you walk toward them and as you walk toward them you can hear them as if it was real and then there are some places that are tables so if you go sit at a table all you can hear are the people at the table and nobody can hear you outside and there's another area with a microphone so if you go up to the microphone then everybody can hear you and you could make I mean it's like it, it, I think it's also got the slight hurdle of it looks like a computer game, and if you're not comfortable in computer games, you might be confused. But yeah. as for walking around and talking to people, it's a lot better than going into a Discord room with 17 others and trying to have a conversation. Um, Helljack is here. Hi, Helljack. No, uh, Mike is not Matt. Matt is off um, eating a lot of tuna melts, I believe. And... Um, uh, so yeah, I have Mike Underwood filling in for Matt right now. So yes, Helljack, Mike is not Matt, but Matt will return someday, I hope. He just wants me to keep all his receipts for his tuna melts and gravy fries, I believe. Um, so yeah, that was my gather, my, my gather promotion. I'm not being paid by gather. I just really wish more people would use them because they're fun. Yeah, I haven't done any anything with Gather. I've been at cons that used it, mm -hmm. but for me, uh, it, it the the notion of kind of putting on even some version of a like social face on certain days was just too exhausting. And yeah. I say that as somebody who loves going to cons and seeing people in person. What is up with that? Because I've been trying to figure that out too. It feels more tiring to worry about sitting at home in my pajamas and needing to do a one hour panel by walking into the guest room and talking for an hour and then going back to my family. But for some reason, it's exhausting. Why? Why is it, Mike? Tell me. Uh, I think the best answers are probably only available from people who have psychology degrees. Damn it. Uh, which is not me. Uh, I, I think there's a, a certain part for me where it's like people are danger and people have stopped, have not stopped being danger, even mm -hmm. though I'm vaccinated. And so like going into the world means uh, accepting varying levels of risk, depending on like what the situation is. And like walking my dog every day meant that I went into the world a lot during the pandemic relative to probably a bunch of people. Um, because I think my dog would just not be in a good place if he didn't get like actual walking in the world. Um, so I was, you know, out every day with a mask as soon as masks were like available and people were talking about them being a thing. And like, I still wear a mask when I go out and walk the dog because it lets me not have to worry about people as much. Hmm. And so like, there's a certain level of like brain 
uh, brain uh, and like mindset toward like people are danger. And it's like not the people at a online convention for science fiction fantasy are not going to be dangerous to me in, in any material fashion in terms of the pandemic because that's not how that works. But I think a lot of people just have less experience and uh, like just being around people. And like, does that somehow transfer? Or is it just like the baseline pandemic exhaustion that a lot of people have been dealing with? Or a combination of everything? Yeah. Um, I think some people said that Zoom is so exhausting because even though you don't actually know where people are looking because you've got everyone's face in front of you. Mm -hmm. It looks like you are interacting one on like with in front of a group of people. And I, I guess for people who do more corporate meeting type work like all day and you're just being stared at and it looked when it's not really happening, but that's how, that's what your brain thinks is happening. And yeah. since your brain can make you car sick cause it doesn't understand which way's up. It's, you know, the brain can do a lot, but I really wish it could understand. No, I'm not sick. Please stop making me nauseated. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm checking on chat. Uh, Val says, I think someone said there's some kind of extremely slight lag in the audio and video that's just enough to give your brain fatigue and discomfort because it can't properly judge tones and facial cues and stuff. That's interesting. Mike yeah. is the new Matt for the new duration of this recording. As such, for the duration of this recording, Mike is now my new boss. Hello, boss. What want done? You have Helljack for the rest of this recording. Um, if you want to just talk to Helljack and make them do something for you, then go for it. I believe Helljack does a lot of my uh, Matt's <laughs> um, uh, website and graphic design, right? Helljack, I believe so. People are out of practice peopling. That's right, Star-Eyed Green. Um, no, one, no one at my work turns on cameras anymore. Yeah. Most of my work calls have five-ish people, but a lot of them don't have their video on and it's easier. Yeah. Yeah, when I... Um, I I've noticed that if I'm video chatting with somebody, but getting the audio from a different source... Mm -hmm. Where it's like I'm on a, a phone call with someone, but then I'm on video and the vi and the audio from the webcam is off. So I'm getting audio from here and video from here. But like that, right now? Yeah. So the, yeah. <laughs> that is really hard. Uh, and I think it's harder the closer the two get together without being totally synced. Uh, and so like in years past, I've not had a whole lot of like audio processing issues, but with that specific format, um, I absolutely do. And I, so I totally believe the, this idea that that like slight gap makes things really hard. I've had the advantage that um, because I worked remote for five years working with Angry Robot, right. I just done so much like on video with like several different video sources. And so I was already used to that. Um, and I think that's especially helped in like doing streamed tabletop games mm -hmm. um, in terms of not not being as worried about like being perceived in a capital P fashion by a number of people at once. Um, so that certainly helps. Yeah. So are you streaming board games? Um, I have been, so I, I GM uh, one show and I play in another show on Speculate, which I co-host with Gregory Wilson and Brandon O'Brien. So I'm GMing a game of Rebel Crown um, and I'm playing in a game of Blades in the Dark. Okay. Um, yeah. And those games, like the Blades game has been going for a bit over a year. I think it started like just after the pandemic started. 
Um, okay. And like, I've been we've been doing a little bit of like tabletop with with speculate, mostly one shots um, before that, and and then have been getting into it. And like, I don't have an in person. I didn't have an in person tabletop group before the pandemic. Um, and so like if I want to play tabletop games at this point, it's it's digital and it will continue to largely be digital. And it's something where I've noticed that I can get a lot of the energy of like socializing with people and the energy that I get playing tabletop stuff, even if it's digital. Um, and so I've tried to latch onto that as much as like as I can. And I can gather the energy to do game prep even when my writing day was stare at the manus at the manuscript for like 90 minutes before accepting failure for the day. <laughs> oh, um, so like I've absolutely like gone to the path of least resistance and put more energy there because it felt like I can get something done instead of just feeling bad about having not written much for the day. Okay. So let's think of um, positive thinking moving ahead is, um, from say August 1st on, what is your advice for writers who are thinking of their own promotion? Yeah. So something that I'm going through right now and I'm happy to kind of like talk through my process is for people who are already vaccinated, um, what is the risk and reward calculation for deciding whether to go and do in-person events? Like, okay, cool. Uh, I'm vaccinated. Everybody in my immediate household is vaccinated. How do I feel about going to Worldcon in person? Okay, well, Worldcon is pretty close to me, so I could probably drive or carpool with people who I also know are vaccinated. And then I think about, you know, how much risk am I comfortable uh, assuming in order to get that in-person benefit of like getting to be at bar cons and talk with colleagues when I can hope that in this field, almost everybody I'm gonna be talking with is gonna be vaccinated. And so my risks are gonna be lower and my risks are lower to like, in terms of like transmitting uh, onward. But then I've also been invited to go to Origins, which is often in the five to 10,000 10, people range. Yeah, And I'm so much less comfortable with that, even though I had an absolutely wonderful time at Origins. Um, and I like, I've had to just like check in every couple of weeks to see how I'm feeling about those. And for me right now, because I don't have anything I don't have any uh, new books that are due out soon and my existing releases, my ability to like boost them up with convention sales is just kind of limited right now. The reward for me is a lot lower um, for doing any kind of in-person events because uh, there isn't a, like a one-to-one -one career thing that I can identify as like a likely major benefit. And so then my reward comes back to the like the socialization, which is certainly a, a major benefit for me, and then like the slow like drip 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 to make an ocean that is like doing events and being in the world and any kind of like networking benefits that I could get there yeah. versus online things. So like that's kind of how my calculus works right now, um, and because that's a bummer because it means doing a lot fewer events. But like looking into twenty twenty two. I'm going to have to keep on doing those evaluations. And the advice that I would give to everybody is think about what could you possibly get from doing an event as a kind of top end possibility. What are you likely to be able to do or get as a baseline? 
um, you know, are there interpersonal or like emotional benefits to getting to like see these people? And then what are the career benefits in terms of uh, connections you might be able to make, being able to get in front of readers and other things like that. And it can be hard to make those calculations because the the risks and the benefits are along different axes, I think, because it's like health and health and cost versus like career benefits. So that's how I'm seeing it right now. Okay. Yeah, the um I will admit the social aspect is huge for me. I'm Yeah. I my first WorldCon I think was two thousand nine in Montreal and I haven't missed one since. And like Missing New Zealand, especially since my family had been planning and saving to go to that Worldcon for years because they started planning it in 2010, yeah. um, was a big blow. And I'm just really glad that Discon is working really hard to make an in-person thing happen. And I really didn't want that to go virtual because like you, DC is really, really easy to get to. It's yeah. not Melbourne. It's not even Chicago. It's just like, it's. I could get on a train. I can't ride a train almost anywhere because of the Appalachian Mountains. I can go up and down the eastern seaboard, and that's it. So I I really, this is me being very, very selfish, but I really wanted Discon to happen for that, too, because I don't want to miss out on the closest Worldcon that's ever been to me in my experience going to Worldcon. Right. And, um... I miss I miss the in person stuff. I I really no. I think I, I was gonna say you don't know re really how much you treasure it until it's gone. I'm like no. I really I, I know how much I treasured it and and I missed it greatly. You can still connect with people, but it doesn't have the ease of you know catching up with somebody at a con. And um, I mean, how many? weird little thing or big things have happened in your career based on happening to run into somebody at convention. I can name yeah. a couple, including a huge one, which is, you know, meeting the person that would become my editor at Orbit in line for a drink. So, right. um, yeah, it's, it's very useful. It's very fun. There are some awesome people in our field that I like to see. Like you, Mike! I'm yeah, just hanging and, out with you. Yeah, and the there's there's a lot to being able to like cordon off a chunk of time and not have to worry about things like doing a convention from home, especially for anybody who's a caretaker, you're not really at a convention if you still have to do all of your caretaker work. Yeah. Um, or even if like the people who you do caretaker work are still around because something could happen that overrides um, like, oh, well, uh, I could do this panel, but like, here's this emergency. And when you're at home, you can address an emergency in a way that you just literally cannot if you're a thousand miles away at a convention. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, there's all of that, all of those kind of intangibles and things. And like, I can get a better sense of what people are feeling about the industry and like, who's getting attention in like a day of a, a bigger convention then I can get more in that one day than I can in like three months of just being online um, in some in some notable ways. And like having everybody or almost everybody kind of disconnected from that ability to process information and to like scuttlebutt together means that these discussions about 
what do we do moving forward are even more decentralized and I think um, more diffused uh, than they would be. Yeah. Um, the Rising Tides is in the chat. Welcome. I'm so glad you dropped by. Good to see you. Um, not even sure I can afford Discon and hope that I, I can, it can happen in person safely because not only would I like to, for the reasons you mentioned, I want other people to have the same. Um, yeah, I, I really hope you get to go too. Um, you're nominated for at least one Hugo, aren't you? Um, I, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, it's always awkward if I'm wrong. But people have done it to me, and it's awkward. So I figure we can all do it to each other if it's awkward. Just um, assuming someone may or may not be nominated. But I seem to remember you were. But um, I, yeah, it's a it 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 is a hard thing to try to remember being uh, the different pandemic math, I guess you're doing. Yeah. Cause it's, um, for a while I wasn't sure if my mother could get vaccinated or not health issues. And mm -hmm. so I was thinking, well, if I'm vaccinated, that's great, but would I still be a carrier or something? And I was really worried right. about that aspect of it. And then I'm, she did get, she was able to get vaccinated. So yay. But, um, you know, try to think about not only your own health, but the health of the people around you. So, uh, yes, you are go You are nominated for Hugo as part of the FIA team. I still need to get that shirt that y'all made after last year, which is pronunciation of FIA with the, um, it's, it's fire. It's that, 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 that shirt is beautiful. Um, yeah. So I, uh, I hope you can make it. I think I still owe you a drink. Um, yeah, because uh, if if uh, if Brandon can make it to Worldcon and Greg can make it to Worldcon, then that would be the first time that the three of us would be in the same place since Brandon came on to be uh, our new third co-host at Speculate, and we could get an actual like host uh, picture because this is the, one of the challenges in like a distributed team is like getting literally getting pictures of the team together is yeah, very well you difficult. could also do a recording together yes come on mike <laughs> catch up live, live, epi <laughs> live episode you know promotional activity like all of all of that kind of stuff um yeah and just you know there something i noticed over the pandemic year is that events would pop up so quickly that i wouldn't hear about them until they were about to happen including mm. events that I would have really loved to have been involved in and or yeah. like were nicely positioned to do. Um, uh, like, I, th I love the idea of more people and more different groups doing like kind of specialized events. But in, in, in like the pre-pandemic convention ecosystem, I think it was easier for me to get, uh, to have events on my radar far enough in advance to decide whether I wanted to, to go to them versus the things where it's like, it pops up. It's like, oh, well, it's too late for me to be on programming, even if, you know, I, I could have been able to, or if the convention right. wanted me to do. Um, but, you know, I, I really hope that people learn from what the team at the Nebulars are doing and specifically, uh, and especially what people at FIA uh, did in like, the first time through for a convention doing it as amazingly as they did um and 
not not needing like a long running institutional history at their back to be able to put something together that was solvent. Um, like to your question about about costs, because the you know such a huge advantage in the online ones is that you don't have to pay any facilities fees. Like your facilities fees equivalent is like you know the your bandwidth and your mm -hmm. your rooms with all of these online things. But I've heard enough from con runners about like the huge costs and challenges that go with facilities fees. Yeah. Um, that I think that that's a that's a huge benefit to online only conventions, but it is not one that um, extends through to the hybrid con conventions. For hybrid, you kind of get both sets of costs to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And I do not envy the people who are going to have to um, figure all of that out. Well, speaking of people figuring stuff out, Catwood uh, asked, um, where was the question? Where did it go? If you are nervous about going to a con, do you recommend volunteering? It makes me less nervous when I feel like I have a job to do. Uh, so I, I assume you're not talking about being nervous because of the pandemic. You're just being nervous being at a convention. Um, I've never, I don't think I've ever volunteered at a convention, but if you like having a job, there's usually many people who want, who need volunteers, uh, many, many conventions that need volunteers, and you might get a break on the price of the convention. Um, I don't know if it's, if they let volunteers go for free, but uh, most, most of the times they give you a break, don't they? Yeah, uh, that's been my experience. Yeah, uh, different. You know, it'll depend on the convention. But something I've heard from people in that recommend volunteering is that it is one of the easiest ways to meet at least a few people yeah. at a convention if you don't believe that you're really going to know anybody else there. Um, and as Catwood said, like having having a reason to be in a place gives you a second layer of shared social context with somebody else. Like, okay, we're all at this convention because of a, a baseline of interest in what the convention is about. And I have a specific reason to be in this room doing what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, whether that is helping with registration or like, mm -hmm. you know, managing the, the con suite or something. Um, and that sense of belongingness can be a great way to, um, uh, to kind of stay stable uh, when otherwise you may have like brain weasels about things because uh, that is, you know, there's there's reasons to be nervous, uh, and then there's reasons that brains will feed you that are not good reasons. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Kurt also says, one hand, I really want to go to one, but I'm also certain that I would be as comfortable as a whale in a desert if I do. <laughs> um, yeah, I just try to... I, I, I fluctuate. Sometimes I feel like in my element, among my people, and the other times I'm just like... Everyone in this room hates me. I gotta go. <laughs> it's very brain weaselly, quite. Um, uh, oh, hi, Masatli. Lurking, but happy to have made the stream. We're glad you're here. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 in the virtual con this weekend. I'm doing something this fall, but it hasn't been announced yet, so I can't. I don't feel like it's my place to announce, but. Um, should announce soon. But uh, then I'm doing DiscCon. And I'm hoping after that, my favorite winter cons will, will open up. I don't know if... Um, uh, crap. Now I can't even remember. Confusion. Yeah, that's yeah. where we hung out last, right? Confusion? 
Yeah, I believe so. And yeah, you know, I don't know if confusion's happening again. It's a January in Detroit. Yeah, and I've really only had snow problems uh, related to Discon one time out of going like seven or so years. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're listening and thinking Detroit in January, it works pretty well, honestly. Yeah, it does. And there's like, I mean, a lot of those people, a lot of those places up there know how to deal with snow. So it was really yeah. snowy the last time I was there, but there were no issues. I was, I, I had more problems with like thunderstorms in Atlanta than snow in Detroit. So, yeah. uh, yeah. Although yeah. I, a uh, blizzard did keep me in Boston one day longer after Boscone a couple of years ago. <laughs> that was the time when the snow wouldn't melt because it was cold and so it yeah. just kept getting more and more snow piling on and i got to why am i i'm disappearing wow i <laughs> sorry the the video is doing weird stuff right now this is kind of oh, okay it's kind of weird um anyway uh i thought you were saying i'm disappearing because the snow was taller than no me. no no the snow was taller than me and it was like going down the uh death star trench because mm. the snow was piled up so high on either side of the uh of the sidewalks it was i really needed an x-wing um so yeah but uh max gladstone and uh his wife were very kind enough to put me up for the night so thank you max if you ever hear this um yeah, I was thinking Back to the Future. That's that's what I feel like. I'm being erased. I, I Someone didn't punch somebody 40 years ago. I don't know. Just my shirt. Okay, my head's still here. Good. Confusion was rad when I was la there last year. I want to go back very badly. Yeah, I barely saw you last the last time. So, um, yeah. I would love to see you again. Confusion, man. Yeah, I look very cyberpunk. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> there's a funny thing where if a convention gets bigger enough, uh, it just changes the experience. Like mm -hmm. There were years when Confusion was small enough in terms of how many industry people are there that I felt like I could see almost everybody or mm -hmm. see just about everybody that I wanted to chat with. And as Confusion has gotten more and more authors and other like New York professionals and folks coming in, it's harder to see everybody in that way. So it like it has to shift in terms of what can this convention do for me? Yeah. Because I'll get to see people, but I have to make plans more actively versus like, okay, well, the hundred of us are all in this part of the bar. Yeah. And so I can like, if I want to go see somebody, I can just go see them versus um, you know, the you know, the that newer location where the bar goes all the way around and there's just so much more space. Mm -hmm. Um and the like it's weird to have to adjust, but uh, it's fine because every every convention has its like ups and downs, um, and just figuring out, okay, what do I want from this weekend experience, and how am I then also going to, or do I want to leave some time and space open for the kind of emergent, uh, random encounter, uh, happy times in right. terms of like, uh, you know, running into somebody and getting to, uh, getting to know them, things like that. Yeah. Uh, we are we have crossed our hour mark um, in the chat. If you have any more questions for myself or Mike about marketing, writing, uh, flailing about as a writer during this apocalypse, uh, let us know now. Um, it's it's always good to talk to you, man. I'm really glad you were able to come on, and um, 
it's a little weird how, like, like I said, we'll have to talk after. It's a little weird how a lot of our things are kind of going parallel right now. Like, half the stuff you're talking about, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that, that hits a little too close to home. I'm really disoriented by the fact that I'm my shirt's suddenly transparent. And, yeah, sorry. Well, it's really weird. And it's been fun for me to watch as you're doing more stuff on Twitch as I'm trying to figure out what, like, how, okay, do I want to, like, take the plunge that way in addition to, like, the tabletop games that I'm that I'm doing mm-hmm. on my friend Greg's channel? So uh, more things to, to talk through when, yeah. uh, when we can make the time. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, well, if you guys don't have any questions, um, I will go ahead and look for someone to raid. Um, oh, and because of, uh, the way my day has gone, I am not going to be gaming this afternoon. Um, I just don't really have the mental energy to go, to pivot directly from ditch diggers to gaming to dinner to tabletop gaming, which is my evening. Um, what am I doing? I'm looking up to see who's on Twitch. Um, oh, Cypher's, Cypher's playing Dragon Age 2. I love Cypher. I love Dragon Age 2. I'm definitely going to raid Cypher. So, um, yeah, if you want to learn more about me, you can go to Merverse.com. If you're listening to this later, if you want to watch the live episodes, it's twitch.tv slash MightyMer. And um, you can support me via Coffee or uh, Patreon or Jemmy. And I do have a new newsletter that I launched last week called The Hot Mic. Not you, Mike. You're lovely, but that's not what it's about. So, um, yeah, I think I hit all the all the buttons I needed to hit. So, uh, Mike, tell us where to find you. Sure thing. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mike R. Underwood, uh, though I don't do a whole lot of broadcast because Twitter is terrible. Um, however, you can find me several times a month on Twitch at uh, twitch.tv slash Arvin Eleron. That's A-R-V-A-N-E-L-E-R-O-N. Uh, it's a um, uh, it's a fantasy name, so that's that's all on Greg. Uh, so this Friday, uh, the sixteenth, I am GMing a session of Rebel Crown, which is a like Game of Thrones ish kind of um, like fantasy political um, series that that's been really fun. Um, otherwise, uh, I have a Patreon where I do video Q and A's and essays about the business and craft of publishing and writing, and talking about some tabletop RPG stuff. And you can find that at uh, Patreon.com/slash/MichaelRUnderwood. Uh, uh, thanks so much for having me on. It's been great getting to catch up and uh, trying to persevere throughout uh, the these year, uh, this year and a half, and random tech stuff. And I hope that your your shirt is in fact not erased from history. Yeah, I know it's really disappointing. It's my solo shirt with Emphis Nest. Um, Anyway, thank you all for hanging out in the chat and chatting. We're going to uh, raid Cypher of Tear now. Uh, if you are a subscriber, you can do various uh, emojis with chickens when you go, but or you could do hashtag Raid or both. Phased out, I'm sorry you unfollowed, but you know how to find me, and, and you'll, you'll find your way back again, I'm sure. I have faith in you. Thank you very much, Mike. Yeah, take care. You can support us at patreon.com slash mightymer. Ditch Diggers! Theme song by Devo Spice, devospice.com.